thank you for coming to me. Normally I have to seek out remnants of you Mandalorians in your hidden hives to harvest your precious, shiny shells. Beskar's value continues to rise. I've grown quite fond of it. Give it to me now, I will peel it off your corpse. Tell me where the Mandalorians are, and I'll walk out of here without killing you. I thought you said you weren't the gambler. I'm not. Time has finally come, the Mandalorian has returned, and our lives are all so much better for it. Hello and welcome to MandoVision. Greetings Bucketheads, Mighty Mandalorian Mercenaries, anyone out there listening, Mayvar Tegar. Welcome to the 12th episode of MandoVision, but this is more importantly, episode 1 of season 2, chapter 9, The Marshal. Nargai Tom, thank you so much for checking out this small, independent Star Wars podcast. Remember, the best way to reach out to us is via social media. We are at Mando underscore Vision on Twitter and Instagram. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and share this sweet, sweet podcast with all the other Mandalorians in your clan. All right, let's get into it. Let's, let's, let's talk about it right off the bat. This episode is pretty god dang awesome. It's a really, 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 really well done episode. And I think a lot of that credit goes to our writer and director, John Favreau. First time directing The Mandalorian, even though he created it last year, he never got behind the camera for it. This is the first time he's had the opportunity to do so. And he does a wonderful job of, of kind of keeping the continuity of the, of, the, of, the, of the other directors prior to him. But kind of pushing things forward, too. This is easily the biggest episode of The Mandalorian we've seen so far. Season 2 off to a much more grandiose start. And, you know, that that Western vibe that was so prevalent in Season 1, trust me, they are keeping that... That, that is strong in this episode. You know, the, the whole Western motif, the Western themes, that, that, that whole uh, Howard Hawks sort of uh, cowboy-esque movie is well in play here, and it's uh, done to... Stunning effect in this first episode of season two. It's been it's really really good. This episode has a wonderful, wonderful blend of old and new and and uh, Easter egg slash fan service kind of references and and stuff that old timey fans like us are gonna get and hear and we register and it registers with us and we kind of freak out a little bit. Uh, but it's not done in a heavy handed way. It's not over the top. We're gonna make you like this because we're gonna evoke memories. You know, it's really strongly done uh i was i was texting with some friends earlier today one of my favorite aspects of this particular episode is that yes we go back to tatooine and by the way just in case you're not going to be clear on this it's spoilers from here on out okay we're talking about the episode in depth all right so spoilers we go back to tatooine something that we we were pretty we were all fairly confident was going to happen in season two and they get it to us right away but what I liked more, most, more about this visit to Tatooine, this return visit to Tatooine for the Mandalorian and for Baby Yoda, um, you know, the first time I, I, I was a little critical in season one when they went back because it was everything we, we knew from before, you know, the cantina and Moss Eisley, and, and it, was, it was just a lot of, of kind of like, hey, remember this stuff? And it, they, they did it fine. It wasn't, I don't mean that as, a, as necessarily as, as a knock, but it was something that I was kind of a little concerned about. This time around... Not only do they, they give us like that dash of the familiar, but we get to see so much more of Tatooine in this episode. New things, new uh, uh, explorations of the Sand People. You know, we go to another another distant uh, community. No, not not uh, not wa- wa- moisture farmers, but we get to meet a miners who are mining on Tatooine. Uh, it's it's a really different 
uh, a feel and it gives it again it just lends itself to that western motif that western vibe uh, a, a small mining town that's been uh you know at one point is overrun by bandits by them by the mining guild which is a reference that we'll talk about a little bit more about uh, we'll talk a little more about later uh really really good stuff we had some wonderful returning faces we had some new faces to see uh, it, it's just a, a great great episode uh, we'll talk about it we're going to kind of go beat by beat uh, in, into this episode so I, I think we should just kind of cut to the chase here uh, let me let me kind of get the credits out there again once again season uh, season 2 episode 1 is chapter 9 The Marshal and is written and directed by John Favreau our guest stars this episode John Leguizamo Amy Sedaris Timothy Oliphant and Tamara Morrison ooh what does that mean that means good stuff. We got a lot ahead. Let's kind of get into it. Let's get into this chapter properly. Let's do the bucket breakdown. Come here, you little womp rat. <laughs> Looks like it remembers me. How much do you want for it? Just kidding, but not really. Let's get into that cold open for season two. The Mandalorian, our mighty Mando Din Djarin, and Baby Yoda in his sweet, floating, floating little cribby. Walking into a new town. We're on a new planet, someplace we haven't been before. Uh, we are struck immediately by the sort of keep to the light that seems to be happening. There's darkness all around Mandalorian and Baby Yoda as they walk through this town. They are staying well within the light. We begin to see creatures, red glowing eyes, lots of them, that are waiting in the darkness. They, but they seem to be held at bay by the light. And as... This doesn't seem to bother the Mandalorian. Baby Yoda seems a tad concerned as he's kind of looking around panning from side to side, taking in the sights. Uh, we also see this this world, this strange uh, city that we're visiting, this strange uh, outpost, that there's uh, interesting graffiti on the wall. It, it would appear to me that it's, uh, it's, it's some kind of... has to do something with imperial occupation, when the, impi- when the empire was in power. The, those white faces look reminiscent of uh, the stormtrooper masks, uh, most familiar... The ones that you, you've seen when they were on Hoth in The Empire Strikes Back. They kind of remind me of that Stormtrooper mask. And then, uh, interestingly enough, one of the graffitied walls has like a golden... looks like a droid behind it. Almost 3PO-esque. C-3PO-esque, if you ask me. But I wonder if that's a story for another time. So I'm instantly intrigued by this world that we're on. Uh, it seems a little seedy, a little dangerous. Seems like a perfect place for Mandalorian to bring a small child. It's wonderful that way. It's the Star Wars universe's equivalent of a good, good, uh, good child raising. <laughs> and uh, but I mean, I'm intrigued by the by the visuals on this planet and like these kind of like graffitied murals that that we're seeing. And I sort of wonder if maybe this will be a planet we go back to at some point because it says seem to have uh, an interesting history and interesting allure to it. But we, we we'll see. So the Mando is on this planet. He's here to meet with. With Cor, uh, Gore Koresh, and that is the, that is the character voiced by John Leguizamo. I don't think Leguizamo's in the suit for this, but I could be dead wrong about that. It could be him inside the suit as well. Leguizamo is an Abyssin. Abyssin. We've seen Abyssins. They've been they were in the Cantina. You saw one in the Cantina. The like the Cyclops looking creature. It's uh, so a nice little callback to something from Episode Four. But this is our first time really interacting with one, and this one's sort of a sketchy underworld figure, uh, sort of like a, seems to be running a crew of some sort, a little bit of a mob boss, maybe small-time mob-esque criminal person, that it would be Gore Koresh, and we are at, ooh, the Mandalorian gets an entrance into this club, into, into this fight club, and it, listen for the sound when he's admitted, you'll know that sound, and as he makes his way in, into, into the fight club, we see we're, we're watching Battling Gamorians. That's right. You remember the Gamorrean guards from Return of the Jedi? The giant pig guards, the green guys? Yeah, they're in like this fight club, UFC from hell sort of situation with vibro axes smashing into each other. It's pretty awesome. The Mando sits down. And again, we use the sound clip to open the show with today. Uh, it's sort of a setup. Kor- Gore Koresh is interested in taking... Uh, Din Djarin's Beskar armor for himself. The value of Beskar is at an all-time high, and he wants to... And apparently he's making a living uh, finding Mandalorians, killing them, and taking their, their armor and then their Beskar and, and, and reselling it, repurposing it, being a general scumbag to the, the Mandalorian people who have fallen on hard times. It seems 
inappropriate and not very cool. So he attempts to turn the tables, attempts a little double cross on our hero. That was something we saw in the trailer that they, they released a few weeks back. So we know what happens. You heard what happens in the audio clip. Our hero turns the tables on them. Gorkares runs for his life. And, ooh, listen. As Gorkares is running and, and Din is in, is in the, the fisticuffs against the goon squad, it's a really great fight scene. It's really a lot of fun. A lot of good stuff. I, I love the Gamorrean jumping out of the ring to try and tackle uh, Din, and then Din just stepping to the back, and, and the Gamorrean just smashes into the ground. It's real. That's there's some good stuff in there, good humor. But then the, the the hand-to-hand stuff, the actual fighting is really strong, really good. We see uh, what do we see? We see the Mandalorian uses armor in a fun way as a weapon too. He uh, tilts his head to close the distance from a punch and smashes his Beskar helmet into some guy's fist. There's uh, a vibro knife from the from his gauntlet, then thrown across the room to hit another guy in the chest. Great fight scene. It's really really strong. Opens up the show really really well. And then as the Mando comes out, goes after Gore Koresh, who's a bigger alien, not uh, not the fleetest of feet, doesn't get away easily or cleanly. Uh, we see the grappling line be deployed once again, and Gore Koresh pulled back to the Mandalorian, thrown up around a light post, and uh, gives up the information that he came for very easily. So we didn't talk about what the Mandalorian was there for. Gore Koresh apparently has information on where to find Mandalorians. Din is looking for another Mandalorian culvert, so that he can kind of connect back with the Mandalorian network of, of, of nests that they have throughout the galaxy. He believes that the, these, ne- uh, these other Mandalorians will have the information he needs to help uh, reunite Baby Yoda with its people. Now, again, to be determined if that's Jedi or if that's, you know, actual Baby Yoda species, but I think the, the, I think the, the reasonable assessment is still going to be I'm sorry, the reasonable assumption will still be that he's looking for more Jedi. And it does make sense that the Mandalorians might know where there's a Jedi or two. After all, we know at least there's there's at least one floating around in the galaxy somewhere for someone to find. So this is Din's plan, is to find more Mandalorians who might be able to use their network of, of contacts to help Din achieve his quest of reuniting Baby Yoda with its people. Uh, so when Koresh finally offers up the information after being strung up by the light post... Uh, he says, Tatooine. What, what, what? The Mandalorian is surprised to hear that because, again, he was just on Tatooine. And he's never seen a Mandalorian there or heard of a Mandalorian being there. But Gore Koresh has. And we will, as the Mandalorian says, is like, all right, Tatooine it is. So as they walk away, Baby Yoda, Mandalorian, walking away, leaving Gore Koresh strung up. By the way, this is after Gore Koresh made the Mandalorian promise that he wouldn't kill him. So... The Mandalorian honors that by not killing him, but he leaves him strung up, and then he shoots out the light so that the creatures that are ed- on the edge of the darkness come after Gore Koresh. But that's what happens when you mess with Baby Yoda and you mess with Din Djarin. You get the You get the beasties from the dark. All right, so that's it. Title's open, and we get into the, ep- get into the main thrust of the episode, and we're going back to Tatooine, and we don't waste any time getting there. We fly back, right back into Tatooine, we get the beautiful shots of the Razor Crest coming through the the atmosphere, streaming towards Moss Eisley. Uh, we see more. We see another sand person on a bantha. It's a great shot as it follows the Razor Crest in, and we landed a familiar a familiar dock, and we find Amy Sedaris once again reprising her role as Pelimoto. And again, we use we used a little sound clip uh, to that that sort of reunites everyone. Good to see some old friends popping up in this episode as well. Uh, you know. We got a little bit of that in the final episode, but Amy Sedaris, or Peli, was back on Tatooine, so she was no, she was going to be no good against the Empire. But it's fun to see her back. Uh, I, I really enjoyed her little appearance, as brief as it was. Really great to see her uh, back with the Mandalorian, back with Baby Yoda, and again, more fun with pit droids. Uh, I, I enjoy the pit droids, I really, really do. Uh, this time around, too, it's, it's pretty interesting, because obviously Peli recognizes the Razor Crest as it, as it settles down, and... She warns the pit droids to go get away because we all know that the Mandalorian doesn't care much for droids. Except now maybe he does a little bit. His uh, experience with uh, IG-11 seems to have softened his stance a little bit against all droids being awful, awful, awful things. So he does, he allows the pit droids to come and take a look at the Razor Crest, give it a nice once-over, as he says. And then he asks Peli for some information about a Mandalorian. 
So the Mandalorian is looking for Moss Pelgo. That was more information that was given to him by uh, Gore Koresh. And here comes one of the biggest pieces of awesomeness in this episode. In possession, in Peli's possession, R5-D4, who we have not seen since Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, the droid that blows its servo motor so that R2-D2 can reunite with C-3PO and go to the Lars homestead and kick off the new hope that is Luke Skywalker in A New Hope. <laughs> Great to see that. I love this. This was a wonderful bit of, of, of again, a, a nice little Easter egg for us old-timey fans who recognize that droid immediately. And I love the fact that when they show the top of his dome, it kind of pans around and you see the top of his dome and you see sort of like the damage from that damaged, damaged servo uh, that he blew in episode four really really fun callbacks there i love that so much i i i could i can't even tell you how excited i was to see r5d4 it was pretty darn awesome and r5d4 comes in pretty handy because r5d4 has the map of tatooine and it will kind of illustrate where uh moss pel i'm uh, sorry moss pelgo used to be the story is that it was overrun by bandits and uh, no it's kind of been wiped off the map so our hero gets his quest, and off he goes. And what I love about this is that it's it becomes a bit of a it's, a... it's a journey. He can't just take the Razor Crest out there and fly to Mos Pelgo. He has to kick it on the speeder bike with Baby Yoda, ears flapping in the wind, and they have to journey. They have to kind of uh, journey to their destination. And I love this because they do such a wonderful job of giving you more context, of exploring more of Tatooine that we've never seen before. You know? Uh, you know, we've only heard reference to things like like the Jutland wastes and the, the you know we saw a little bit of the Dune Sea in Jedi, but you know what I mean. Uh, you also get like a really good scene that's going to foreshadow the rest of the episode of the Mandalorian hanging out with Sand People at night. He camps out with them and he's communicating with them, and we saw that he's able to do that in uh, Chapter Five back in Season One. So he he understands Sand People in a way that most other characters we've interacted with in Star Wars doesn't. So it's it's, it's a really cool. Uh, feature of, of of the character and, and kind of like his way of communicating with people. It allows us to start seeing the same people a little bit differently than had they been portrayed, you know, in other media mediums. So now, now uh, Din reaches Mos Pelgo and he rides into town slowly. And this is, again, this is straight out of a Western right here. The, the, the stranger in town riding down the main street as the locals check him out, and he's checking them out, getting the, the feel, and they don't like him because he's a stranger. And again, this is the Mandalorian stranger too, so he's he's rather fierce looking in that in that T-shaped visor. Uh, but it, this is, I mean, again, this is classic Western cinema right here. You've seen this in a in a dozen movies, if not more. It's it's really really good stuff. And we're gonna eventually get our way, make our way into a the local cantina with a nice weekway bartender who. You bar bartenders, just like in the Westerns, the bartenders in Star Wars seem to know everything, too. So uh, we're going to get some information here, and it's going to set up a confrontation between the Mandalorian and the Mandalorian who he is looking for. And this leads to the introduction of the Marshal, the title character of this chapter for the Mandalorian. And this is where we, we meet Timothy Oliphant as Va uh, Vanth Cobb Vanth, excuse me, as Vanth Cobb the marshal of this town, of Mos Pelgo, and he's wearing a very familiar set of armor. He's wearing the armor of Boba Fett. And it's a striking image as Timothy Oliphant stands in that doorway, silhouetted with the, the, the familiar Boba Fett helmet, the antenna on the top. Uh, Timothy Oliphant cuts a, 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 a lean, mean silhouette, that is for sure. But you can also kind of see how the armor, it's a little, little ill-fitted to him. Doesn't you know? Doesn't cover up all the vital parts the best, but it's a striking image, and it's and it's 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 so weird and wonderful to see the Boba Fett armor back in play on a on a different character, and it's kind of you know it's kind of a cobbled together version of the armor. You know, you have the chest plate, the back plate, you have the rocket pack, jet pack, helmet, and some of the gauntlets, but like it, it's just it's a little striking to see it not on like the gray bodysuit with some of like the other accessories. It's it's uh but still. It's just so wonderful to see that armor back in play, back in, in live-action Star Wars. It's uh, It was a real treat, and it leads to a confrontation because Din Djarin does not take kindly to a non-Mandalorian parading around in Mandal Mandalorian armor, which I think we'll get to something about that a little bit later. We'll talk about that, but here, let's, let's play a little snippet of the confrontation between Cobb Vanth 
and Din Djarin. I've never met a real Mandalorian. Heard stories. I know you're good at killing. And probably none too happy to see me wearing this hardware. So, I figure only one of us walking out of here. But then I see the little guy. And I think maybe I picked you wrong. Who are you? I'm Cobb Vanth, Marshal of Mos Pelgo. Where did you get the armor? Bought off some Jawas. Hand it over. I can't even begin to to uh, emphasize how excited I was to see Timothy Oliphant in Star Wars. I love I love that man so very very much. He's in so many of of my favorite things, and uh, to see him be this martial character. And again, we sort of, we on our last episode we speculated that maybe they were trying to throw us off by by suggesting he was going to play this this. Uh, this kind of sheriff of this town on, on Tatooine, like that seemed a little too on the nose. But I still love the idea, and uh, seeing it come to life, be, be you know having that rumor be accurate, uh, was perfect. It was wonderful. I loved seeing it so so much. Hey man, if that if a person like Timothy Oliphant uh, wants to be a sheriff in Deadwood, and he wants to be a federal marshal on Justified, and he wants to be a space cowboy in Star Wars, more power to him. Give him all the all the Mandalorian armor he can find from Jawas. Because uh, he kills it, he's he's great in it. It's but it is f sort of fun as they are as Din and Cobb are first uh, first kind of sizing each other up. Our Mando Din Djarin sort of assumes that that Cobb is is a true Mandalorian, and it isn't until he sits down uh, with the Spachka and removes his helmet that causes Din to sort of pause and hold in place and realize that's when that's when Din realizes that uh, that is not the way. This guy doesn't know the way. And uh, he is a, an imposter in armor, and he wants it back. So we're going get to get an old-time, old-fashioned Western standoff uh, between Cobb Vanth and Din Djarin, as Din wants to reclaim the the, the, the Mandalorian armor from a, from an imposter. And we get a really great showdown, great stare-down, as it looks like they're about to draw on each other. You know, a few more threats are exchanged first, but they are going to draw on each other because... Din must reclaim the armor. Like it's like his responsibility to take his back for his people. So it gets really intense, and we wonder, like, is this what, what's going to break this up? How is this going to? This is not going to come to an end just yet. We just met Timothy Elephant's character. Like this is our first time meeting Cobb Vanth. He can't go down just like this. Well, then the the the. I was about to say the earth, but it's, <laughs> the surface of Tatooine begins to rumble. The town begins to shake like an earthquake, but it's like gaining, gaining, ramping up, rearing up, and we go outside of the bar to see what the cause is, and we see something beneath the sand, something large and posing, moving beneath the sand towards the town, making its way through the town, causing some destruction along the way, and then ultimately uh, popping out of the sand to reveal itself as it eats a bantha, and it reveals itself to be none other than a crack dragon. Again, something we have not seen in the movies other than in its a skeletal form, which C-3PO shuffles past in, in A New Hope at the very beginning before he's picked up by the Jawas. That big skeleton there, that's a crack dragon skeleton. Now, if you've played the video games, uh, particularly Knights of the Old Republic, you will remember having to fight a crack dragon, and it's a lot of fun, and there's a good times to be had. So this is a really fun thing to see brought to life. Really great effects. We don't see much of the of the dragon at first, uh, just kind of as it bursts from the sand. But I love the way they kind of depict the um, its movement beneath the surface. It's kind of there's a little bit of like a Dune esque thing with with their sandworms, and there's also a little bit of a almost a little bit of a Tremors sort of vibe to it as well. You know, and it's sort of a southwestern western <laughs> with with the Tremors a little bit. But yeah, when the, when the when the crack bursts from the sand. And uh, swallows the bantha. Uh, it's uh, it's pretty darn impressive. And this is when Cobb Vanth makes a uh, makes a bargain with the Mandalorian. This this is not the first time the Crack Dragon has has come to the town and and caused problems and destruction. And it's only a matter of time before the Crack Dragon starts eating people as opposed to banthas. Oh, by the way, a great shot here of Baby Yoda hiding in a pot in the bar from the from the dragon. 
But this is again, this is when 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 Cobb Vanth is going to make a make a proposition to if the Mandalorian will help him kill the Krat Dragon, he will hand over the armor. Then that's that. Cobb Vanth, not a bad guy. He used the armor to liberate his town from sand people and bandits, and and he knows he can't fight the Krat Dragon alone. So he wants to recruit the Mandalorian for this, and the the price will be the armor. He'll re return the armor willingly. Which I think seems like a pretty reasonable deal. I mean, again, we're just meeting Cobb. We don't know for sure that he's like legit on the level here. But something interesting is going to come up in just a minute, and we're going to talk about that in a sec. So Din and Cobb head out of town. Cobb knows where the Crack Dragon's lair is, and they're going to take their speeders to get there. We see the Mando on his speeder first. This is a great shot. I love this shot so much. This, the Mandalorian on his speeder bike, and then coming up from behind, Cobb Vanth on his speeder bike, which... You know what? Look closely at it. It bears a gosh darn insane. It's got. I mean, it's got to be right. It's got to be. The resemblance is too, too much. That has to be an engine from Anakin Skywalker's pod racer, because that's exactly what it looks like. <laughs> and I, I again, that sort of lends itself to, you know, what we know about Tatooine, is that Tatooine, uh, is sort of like this unescapable place, and and. Everything there has value for as long as it works. And so just because Anakin didn't need a pod racer anymore doesn't mean those parts went to the junkyard and that was that. Repurposed, redistributed, so it turned into a speeder by somebody, maybe turned into it by Cobb. Maybe he found it, you know, maybe Jawas found it, repurposed it. Who, who knows? Maybe Watto repurposed it. Who, again, who knows? Uh, it's just uh, it's just really, really cool. And again, another, another little nod, a little throwback. But one that makes sense, because, like tat again, Tatooine is this place where survival is harsh. Survival is not easy. So it makes sense you're going to use everything until it's ground to dust. And and I love that about, about Tatooine, and I love seeing something like that. Again, a callback. They don't. It's not heavy-handed. They don't make it like an obvious reference. Like, this used to be a pod racer. Nothing like that. It's just it's just there, and it, it is what it is. And that's I sort of like that matter-of-factness about this episode in particular. And, and again, with its references in this episode, the kind of the Easter eggs. They are what they are. They're there. And they're there. Again, it enriches our experience for those of us who recognize them. Uh, but it doesn't detract for someone who's new to it because they're like, I don't get it. it, it it's just, it, it, it's on the screen. And some of us know it in a deeper way than the others. And it's, it's fine. It's great. It's really, really good. So I love this scene as they are approaching, making their way to the Cry Dragon Lair. And we get a really good, uh, I guess it's, I don't want to call it a standoff, necessarily. Oh, you know what? Hold on. I got ahead of myself. I got ahead of myself because what happens next is also really, really cool in that, you know, a lot of season one, when we're meeting new characters, we kind of have to piece together, we kind of have to piece together, uh, the you know, little bits of their history. There's a lot of mystery to the characters and who they are, where they came from, how they got to where they are. That's particularly too true with with uh, with Cara Dune and with, uh, uh, you know, Car Grief Karga. You know, we, we sort of have to infer little bits about them, and we get little little nuggets here and there. On the speeder bike journey with with Din and Din, Baby Yoda, and and Cobb, uh, Cobb just comes out and kind of lays out his origin story, like how he got the armor, how it came to be. And I, I really like that about this because I think it sort of uh, sets the table for us as an audience and for, for Din as a character to know that he... Uh, Know that he can he can trust this person because you know where he came from. You know what he did to help people, help him, help protect people, and and sort of uh, liberate his town. You know, we see we flash back to the second Death Star exploding, which signals the end of the Imperial occupation of Tatooine. Again, this is a, a I think this is a nice little nugget nugget too because sometimes in some of the some of the the, the books and the lore, uh, the occupation of Tatooine is sort of downplayed because it is a backwater. It is a, a really remote planet uh but it's it's a one with with vital spaceports and uh you know a lot of uh, a lot of activity N maybe the criminal kind but that's okay but yeah i mean you gotta remember the empire had a garrison there they were an occupying force they did have a presence uh so it is kind of interesting and in, in, uh, to hear them referred to as a, as an occupying force on, on tatooine so we flash back to that we see the hull of id of the death stars the second death star exploding over over the moon of endor and the people reveling in it, and I, I think Timothy, uh, I think Cobb even says it. You know, power abhors a vacuum. So as soon as the Empire pulls up stakes, the, this mining guild 
moves in, takes over the town, starts blowing away people, you know, uh, taking the mines for themselves. Uh, now, we have... The Mining Guild has been mentioned previously. Most notably in The Empire Strikes Back, Lando Calrissian mentions that Cloud City has been able, because they're a small operation, they've been able to stay below the notice of the Mining Guilds. The Mining Guilds have also been featured in Star Wars Rebels. They're not nice. <laughs> and we see that firsthand in this episode as the Mining Guild rolls into most most, uh, most Pelgo and just blows people away. And Cobb is able to escape from the cantina, from the execution scene as everyone's being murdered by the Mining Guild. He uh, steals a Camtono. He doesn't know what's in it, but he grabs it from one of the Mining Guild vehicles and he makes off for the desert so that he, uh, he uh, will be safe except he's in the desert <laughs> so we get a great scene of him as he sort of uh, stumbles his way across the sands of Tatooine with this Cantono in hand on the verge of death only to be rescued found discovered by Jawas in a sand crawler I lit out took what I could from the invaders grabbed a Cantono I had no idea it was full of silicax crystals I guess every once in a while, both sunshine on a womp rat's tail. So once he's rescued by the Jawas, he sits in the, in the sand crawler, hydrating, drinking all the water he can get his hands on. The Jawas open up the Camtono, they find the, the crystals, and they want to trade. They want to they barter for the crystals, and they start offering Cobb all this junk. And that's when he notices off in the corner in the, of, the, of the sand crawler, like on the wall, the armor, the helmet of a Mandalorian. The armor, the helmet of Boba Fett. And he decides that he'll trade the crystals for the armor. Pretty good deal, I think. You get this pretty sweet set of armor. It's a little sand scorched, a little, little sand blasted, but still looks pretty good, still functioning. So it has that sweet digital uh, light system on the left, over the, like, the left chest plate. All, all really working. Looks good. Looks great. The jetpack functional too, despite... Well, we'll talk about we'll talk about the jetpack later. Hang on, let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> so, the Mandalorian and and uh, and excuse me and Cobb uh, make their way to the crate lair, and this is when we encounter some more sand people. And uh, again, Cobb is very surprised to find that our our boy Din can communicate with the sand people and makes friends with their uh, little uh, dog-like creatures. And and uh, Cobb is leery. Of the Sand People because they have attacked Mos Pelga in the past, but the Mandalorian realizes that uh, killing a card dragon is not the easiest thing, and the and the Sand People want the crack killed as well. So you can see that Din is sort of coming up with the idea that uh, a team up is going to be the best way. The, you know, the more people involved, the better, because killing a crack dragon not going to be easy. So with Boba Fett's armor now in place. He doesn't know it's Boba Fett's either. He just sees some sweet Mandalorian armor. Goes back to Mos Pelgo and begins uh, begins payback time. It's time to kill the Mining Collective and get them out of Mos Pelgo, take his town back, help the people, because the Mining Collective basically turns it into a slave camp, forces its citizens to work the mines, which I'm assuming are probably rather dangerous, and nobody wants to be a slave. That's not cool. So uh, uh, Cobb is like the liberator of this town. Again, more uh, more backstory that kind of illuminates him as a, as a generally a good dude. He may have some problems with sand people, but we'll talk about that shortly. So the neatest part, one of the, one of the, again, another piece of uh, Easter egg for fans, another piece of fan service that's really, really cool. In this scene where Cobb Vanth is, is kicking the mining collective out of town, we get to see something that all Star Wars fans of my age bracket have dreamed of for a very, very long time. He deploys the rocket from Boba Fett's jetpack. Why is that so significant? Why is that so cool? We saw Django do that, right? We did. But guess what? Let's take it back a level. Let's go back in time to the late 70s when the Star Wars toys are coming out. And the prototype Boba Fett toy had a launchable rocket backpack. The toy, the prototype is made onto the market. There are several hundred of these toys floating around in the world. It's the most, one of the most collectible Star Wars toys ever. But it never made mass distribution because... Uh, that Kenner was worried the parents groups were gonna were gonna freak out about a toy that could shoot a kid's eyes out. And why is it cool that it could shoot a kid's eye out? Well, guess what they're gonna do later in the show. Yeah, we're gonna talk about that. We'll get there, folks. Don't worry. But really, really cool to kind of see the the Boba Fett rocket pack fire a rocket from it. I mean, that was just awesome. Again, 
I loved those toys when I was a kid, so I mean, it was a big part of my childhood. Uh, and I know the legend of the, of the fireable rocket pack. You know, I remember playing with a Boba Fett toy. I, I have a Boba Fett toy on my bookshelf right now. And I remember as a kid playing with it and like thinking, like, how cool would it be if this rocket actually shot out of it? Well, there were versions of that, but uh, I didn't have one. And they were, again, they're extremely uncommon, extremely rare. So if you have one and you didn't realize it, you're rich. But don't sell it ever. Keep it forever. All right, let's get back to the show. So, like I said, a, a, a sort of peace is bartered between the Sand People, Cobb Vanth, as a representative of his people, though he has, still hasn't told the people of, of most Pelos, most Pelgo, that, uh, that uh, he has to, they have, they have to work with the Sand People to get rid of the Krayt Dragon. It hasn't come up just yet. But this is part of the Mandalorian's plan. He offers the citizens of, of Mos Pelgo as, as uh, more bodies to help fight the Krayt Dragon as they sort of formulate a plan of attack. Now, this leads to a great scene of a, a caravan of sand people moving into the Mos Pelgo. Actually, I should back it up before that, because I do, I really like the people, the, the scenes with the sand people here, as we sort of get to explore a little bit more about them and a little bit more about what they're about and the sort of um, nature of the sand people. This, this sort of, uh, you know, they are, they are very much of Tatooine in the sense that like, they are kind of its keepers of its, of its long history. You know, through their stories, through their oral traditions, they know the history of the planet in a way that the settlers don't don't uh, don't know and don't seem to care. And I think that's when, in a lot of the a lot of the lore, a lot of the other canon stuff, uh, that is one of the main reasons for the conflict between the settlers and the Tuscans, is that the the Tuscans care about the planet, they care about its history, and the settlers are just there to to harvest the water or to mine it for resources, and that that offends the the Tuscan people and it's, again a lot of reason for the conflict between those two groups so again this is like just like any other western I mean this is this is when uh, the 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 small town and the and the local Native American tribe have to unite to get rid of the uh, evil land baron who's killing all of them you know it, again we're, we're really leaning into those western motifs here you know you have the martial character in Cobb Vanth you know which is like a Gary Cooper-esque character I mean the Western motif is so great. It's so wonderful. And I, you know, I, I neglected to mention how the opening of the show is shot in like that wide 70 millimeter Western grandiose, like, whoo, again, I'm going to reference Howard Hawks again here, but, uh, you know, it's just this wonderful, wonderful opening shot in that 70 wide, 70 millimeter wide setting. And we get back to that later in the, in the, in the, at the end of the episode, it's really wonderful stuff. Really, really good. Just like, again, it's small details, but if you kind of catch on to what they're doing, it just really enriches your viewing experience. And it's so it's so fun and wonderful. And I love all those small little touches that just make this show uh, so top-notch. So, so again, uh, the, the, the highest quality, the highest compliment I can give to the show is that, I mean, it just hits on every level. I, I, even if you're not a Star Wars fan, like you're going to recognize things in this. My dad doesn't really give a darn about Star Wars necessarily, but he does like westerns, and that's gonna be the that's gonna be the way that I, I woo him into watching this show. Is like, it's gonna be like, listen, it's like a space western. I think you'll dig it, and maybe he will. And that that'll be the trick. Well, well, I'll keep you posted on how that plays out. All right. So, again, this wonderful caravan of Tuscans heading to Most Pelgo. So we're gonna have the awkward encounter. You know, Cobb Vanth has to kind of break the news to the people that they must work together with the Tuscans again that they have a history the Tuscans have raided there but we find out that it was a two-way street because the Tuscans were attacked as well by the people of Mos Pelgo so there, there's a, a shared history there but they kind of have to put that behind them to achieve their 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 collective goal of just defeating the crate dragon and it's really uh again you cut you see that tension you know anger boils over at certain points on both sides but Cobb and, and Din have to make the peace. They have to make this work or else they're never going to kill the Crack Dragon. I mean, they're just, they're too big. They're too powerful. They're too strong. And we get to see a little bit of that uh, as, as, the, as the Crack Dragon, you know, the, the Tuscans take them to where the Kratz Lair is. And, and we see, like, their attempt to kind of lure the dragon out. They, they, uh, the same people tend to feed the Crack Dragon to keep him asleep longer. And, uh, it doesn't always work to its best benefit. Another neat aspect of the Krat Dragon and its lair is that its lair is what they say an abandoned Sarlacc pit, and you get a, a great exchange between uh, between Cobb and and 
and din and i think i'm gonna i think i'm gonna insert it right now into the show for you hang on they say it lives in there they say it sleeps it lives in an abandoned sarlacc pit i've lived on tatooine my whole life there's no such thing as an abandoned sarlacc pit there is if you eat the sarlacc i did jump ahead a little bit it was, it's after this scene that the Mandalorian uh, and Cobb realize they, they need more help than just the two of them and a handful of Tuscans. This is when they realize that they have to get the people of the town to help as well. So this is when they go back and the caravan heads to heads back to uh, Mos Pelos. I got a, like I said, I got a little head there. We had to go to the crate lair and see how big that monster is. So, yeah. Now we're back on track. I've seen the size of that thing. Will swallow your entire town when the fancy hits it. Your lucky Mos Pelgo isn't a sandfield already. I know these people. They are brutal. But so is the Dune Sea. They have survived for thousands of years in these sands, and they know the great dragon better than anyone here. They are raiders, it's true, but they also keep their word. We have struck a deal. If we are willing to leave them the carcass and its ichor, they will stand by our side in battle and vow never to raise a blaster against this town until one of you breaks the peace. So the deal is struck, and the town people and the bantha and the banthas, the town people and the Tuscan raiders will work together to destroy the crate dragon. And we see the beginning of, of their plan as they uh, they take a lot of their mining equipment with them, a lot of explosives. And they're going to use these explosives. They're going to like try to try to bait a trap, lure the crate dragon out. But again, Cobb and the Mando have to realize that there's going to be some problems here, as as these two different groups of people have to learn how to work together to overcome uh, this this seemingly insurmountable obstacle that is the crate dragon. And again, I love this scene as the ba the the herd of banthas and sand people roll into into Mos Pelgo. It's uh, really really cool. All right, so they're all laying their trap. The, the 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 gist of the plan is to draw out the crack dragon a long way from its from its uh, entrance to its cave, to its lair, uh, and that's where they have laid explosives beneath the surface. According to the sand people, the 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 crack dragon is most susceptible to damage on its belly, on on its underside. So the 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 explosives are placed in the sand, and once the crack dragon is out far enough and he's above the explosives, Cobb Vance will trigger the explosives and blow up the crack dragon. Except, of course, it doesn't go as easy as all that. And uh, a lot of the sound people and uh, townspeople pay the price. I don't, I don't want to... I'm not going to do like a beat-by-beat beat per se on, on this action sequence because it's a really big, long action sequence. And I think just, just watching it, uh, you're, you're going to get a lot out of it on your own. Let, but I will hit on, on the, the ultimate highlight of this, of, this, uh, of, this, this, of this set piece is... Cobb Vanth, Din Djarin, flying around the Crate Dragon with their jetpacks and attempting to to blast it to smithereens and, and divert its attention from destroying the rest of the sand people and the rest of the of the townspeople. Uh, because we we don't see it at first, but eventually we do get to real we, we find out that Crate Dragons shoot. Uh, we real we we learn the sand people and the, and the townspeople learn that the crate dragon shoots uh, acid, basically, out of its mouth. It's uh, instant death, instant kill, instant disintegration if you are hit by the crate dragon acid. And uh, that's going to leave a mark, for sure. So, yeah, the stakes are, are upped as the crate dragon is now spewing acid on people. And uh, it's pretty... It's fairly gruesome for a Star Wars movie. I mean, again, there's no blood. There's no guts or anything like that. But, I mean, these people are dissolved into, <laughs> into nothingness. By by crate dragon uh, spit, and it's uh it, it doesn't look like a good way to go honestly. So by, by Star Wars standards, fairly gruesome die, uh, death. But watching Din and Cobb jet around in their in their packs and and just uh, uh, I mean we we got glimpses of this last season in 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 uh, chapter three, the sin, with the Mandalorians using their jetpacks descending into Navarro and helping Din escape with Baby Yoda. Uh, but this is a much more different this is a very different take on that because we're we're seeing them in more of a combat scenario where the jetpacks are being used uh as not just they're not just landing 
they're not just taking off. Like, there's actual maneuvering here, getting around the crate Dragon. And, you know, uh, what we can infer from this is that Din has been ta uh, taking his lessons. He's uh, been watching his his, uh, his YouTube videos on how to use the rocket pack in his, in his free time, and he's getting pretty darn good at it. And Cobb Vanth has uh, obviously had some experience using the rocket pack, using the jet pack, and getting around. I believe they call it the Phoenix, by the way. I probably should call, start calling it the Phoenix. But regardless, jetpack. <laughs> so, really great scene. This is also when we, uh, shortly after this, we also get Cobb firing the rocket once again into the eye of the crate Dragon. So there it is, mothers out there from the 70s. Someone did get their eye shot out by, by Boba Fett's rocket pack. It finally happened in 2020 on The Mandalorian Season 2. So really, really good stuff in there. Uh, I, again, I don't want to go beat by beat. It seems like Din's going to make the, the noble sacrifice. He's going to... Uh, <laughs> you know, we get the, we get the, the Jonas, Jonah and the Whale scenario where Din... And a bantha loaded with explosives are going to be swallowed by the by the by the crate dragon. Din does bla is able to blast his way out, electrocuting the crate dragon, and then he triggers the explosive, and explosive things happen. Crate dragon, go bye bye, and that's sort of sort of all how it ends, right? That's I mean, like I said, we're, we're skipping around a little bit in this in this final battle because. It's just a really great action set piece that I think you should totally, totally watch. And you don't need me to convince you of that. But it, it's, again, a lot of really good stuff in there. You see the sand people and the, the town people coming together, working together to overcome. And then at the very end, after the Crate Dragon's been defeated, we get another Easter egg that is beyond ten level 10 nerdery. This is top-notch nerdery, folks. I mean, this is this is Knights of the Old Republic is a big deal video game from from my youth, and for for not just for me, but for many many people. And one of the things you do in that game is you kill a crate dragon, and then you must if you if you are smart and you search its remains, oh, you find stuff. You find a pearl. You find a big giant pearl in that crate dragon belly, and that's exactly what the sand people do. They they extract the crate Dragon Pearl, and they hold it above their heads like a giant trophy. And it's awesome. And again, something that, you know, you watch it and you don't have that familiarity with it, it still is really cool. You're like, oh, wow, look, they found a pearl inside that crate Dragon. But if you're a person like me, and I know several other people like me who have also played Knights of the Old Republic for the 70 billionth time, you, it's just a, a, a just an, an extra little wink in your direction. And uh, I love it so so much. It made me so insanely happy to see that. Um, oh, ooh, I get the chills just thinking about it. But what a wonderful episode this is. Uh, all right, so let's get to the biggest part. Of, I guess, well, actually, the biggest part. I mean, this this action sequence here is huge. This is the biggest thing they've done on this show yet. I mean, you thought the fights at the end of season one were big. You thought the Mandalorians descending on those bounty hunters at, in chapter three, it was a big deal. The scale on this episode is so marvelous, so well done. And I mean, we've all watched the Mandalorian documentary. We know how they did it. They are in that giant video drome thing. And, and so like, this, this is all, it's, it's, you know, these backgrounds are all computer, but it looks phenomenal. The, the scaling on this is off the charts, next level, amazing. I love watching the same people get whipped through the air as they're trying to you know, kind of like harness this crate dragon. There, there's so many awesome, awesome things in, in here. If you haven't watched the episode yet, I, I know I've spoiled the shit out of it, but uh, hopefully like, looking back, you're, 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 you want to watch it again because it's just really, really cool, man. <laughs> I, can't, I can't emphasize that enough. It's great. Watch it again just to see... Uh, Cobb and, and, and Din whipping around in their jetpacks. I mean, that's pretty freaking awesome, too. I love it just when they take off the, you know, Cobb helmets up, and it's time to fly. And you got Baby Yoda at a safe distance, but watching with concern in his eyes at, at, at all of this. And Din does, I, I should say that Din does uh, tell Cobb at one point that he's going to have to take care of the kid, because I'm assuming you know, it looks like Din's going to try to make the noble sacrifice, even though I think we all know at this point that, uh, that Din's going to make it out. But at least he does have that concern to be like, hey, can you watch, can you watch my, uh, my adopted son for for a little bit if I if I don't make it out of this? So so interesting stuff, really really cool. I love it when the, when the crate uh, is bouncing around and coming out of him from different points in the in the sand from the mountaintop. It's awesome. Watch this sequence; it's so good. 
So as the, as the Tuscans extract the pearl from the, the dead body of the crate dragon, we also see Mandalorian and Cobb Vanth come together. Cobb has put together the armor as promised, hands it over willingly, gladly, thanks the Mandalorian, thanks Din Djarin for his help, and uh, they have a nice uh, uh, moment at the, at this very end where they um, where they hope to they say they hope to see each other again down the road, which I think we all hope to see more of Timothy Oliphant in Star Wars because. Uh, I didn't know how much I wanted Timothy Oliphant in Star Wars until I saw him in Star Wars. I mean, listen, I was excited by the casting news of Timothy Oliphant in Star Wars. But seeing him in Star Wars was, ooh, mwah, perfection, perfection. I love that man so much. I want to kiss him right on his cheek, maybe on his mouth, but mostly on his cheek. Then again, it's COVID time. No kissing. Sorry. You have to wait, Timothy. Stand in line with the rest of them. Anyways, wonderful, wonderful wonderful scene with, between these two characters. Hopefully we will see more Cobb Vanth down the road. I mean, this is the first episode. You know, season one did the thing where everyone kind of came together at the end to help. Maybe we get a, a little bit of that as well. This, uh, this can't be the last time we're done with Tatooine because, uh, oh, hey, something else is about to happen too. As the Mandalorian packs up Baby Yoda, the Boba Fett's armor, and heads back to Moss Eisley, to the Razor Crest on the speeder bike, Again, the camera pulls out, and we get that wonderful 70-millimeter shot. The twin suns, the binary sunset of Tatooine, as the, as the speeder bike races across the sands, and we see a lone figure staring down at what occurred. We see him from the back. He's bald. We see gaffy sticks. We see a rifle across his back. He's in some kind of robe, some kind of garment that I am unfamiliar with. He turns to the camera, and we see his face full on, Tamora Morrison himself. That's right. You last saw him as Django, but now he's back as Boba Fett. Another bit of, of true casting news, of accurate casting rumors, uh, uh, that he is back as Boba Fett, and he uh, is not stoked. I would imagine he had a hard look on his face. Hard look. So I wonder, again, so many questions to, to kind of ponder about, about what happened, where he's been, what's going on with him. Was he trying to track down his armor? Has he been looking for it all these all this time? How long has he been out of the Sarlacc pit? You know, there's a lot to kind of get into. A lot to to. There's so much more to get into. There's so much more to get into. But let's speculate a little bit. All right. When you see his face, I mean, he does have some scarring on his face. So at some point, he is in that Sarlacc pit. The digestive acids are doing their business, slowly digesting him over the, over a thousand years. So that that scarring is visible. He was in the Sarlacc pit, obviously. The question is, did he? lose the armor in the pit or after the pit? How does he get out of the pit? Now, we, we talked about it earlier, too. They, they allude to this crate dragon ate a Sarlacc, and that's why he lives in the Sarlacc's, in the Sarlacc pit, because he ate the Sarlacc that lived there. I don't think this is the same Sarlacc pit, the great pit of Carcoon from Return of the Jedi, but it's entirely possible that it is. It's also entirely possible that another crate dragon ate the Sarlacc, and that's what helped liberate Boba Fett from the digestive system of the Sarlacc. You know, uh, it, it's hard to say for sure what's going to happen. Or did Boba Fett blast himself out? That was the old canon. That was the old Star Wars Legends mythology, is that Boba Fett blasted his way out of the Sarlacc pit, uh, but was badly injured in the process, you know, covered in those digestive acids and, and things of that nature. So it, it, it's, it's very curious to see what they're going to do there. Uh, another bit of, of, you know, again, we wonder, like, so how long has he been out? What's he been doing? Has he been searching for the armor all this time? Was he on his way? To, was he tracking Cobb Vanth to reclaim the armor? Is he going to go after Cobb Vanth now to find out where the armor's gone, and which would put him on the path to Din Djarin? Does that mean bad things for Cobb Vanth, who is a character that I now very much enjoy and hope we get to see again? Or is his time in Star Wars going to be very short-lived as Boba Fett... Uh, puts a gaffy stick through his head or something. I, I guess we'll have to wait and see. So much to, to, again, I love these mysteries. I love it so much. And it doesn't, I don't think they're going to monkey around too much this year. Like, they're going to get into it. I mean, they showed us Fett right off the bat. So, you saw Din's reaction to Cobb in the, in the Mandalorian armor. And, and Cobb, not a Mandalorian, admits it right off the bat, not a Mandalorian. We've had the discussion on this podcast but with its status as a pretender, as someone who is impersonating a Mandalorian in order to uh, enhance their reputation and enhance the, the fees that they demand as a bounty hunter. 
I'm assuming this is not going to play well with Din if he comes looking for that armor again, or if he somehow gets that armor back from Din at some point, which, I mean, for dramatic tension alone, I imagine Boba Fett will get his armor again, and there will be mass conflict, and Boba Fett and him will have a very adversarial relationship. I could be dead wrong about that. They could be best friends, for all I know. But I think adversarial seems to make the most sense. Uh, so, yeah, just, wow, man. Ooh, 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 ooh. There's so much to get into. I'm so excited. I'm so excited that The Mandalorian's here. I'm so excited that every Friday, we all get to look forward to watching this this amazing show and seeing how they continually uh, raise the bar for not just them for themselves, but for Star Wars in general. You know, I, 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 I'm reluctant to sort of admit that the sequel trilogy trilogy overall really bummed me out and, and kind of uh, caused me to not necessarily falter in my love for Star Wars, but I just got a little like, oh man, that's a, it seemed like such a missed opportunity. Uh, and then this show debuted last year, and uh, it, it, it was this soothing balm that, that, that was just like worked its way over my heart and, and, and healed all the scars of some of the disappointments of the sequel trilogy. I... I I can't tell you guys enough how much this show means to me. I'm so happy that it exists, and I'm so happy that it's so gosh darn good. It, it's really, really impressive what they've been able to do so far. Again, this is just the first episode of Season 2. The stakes are so big. The show is so big now. Again, look at this grandiose uh, action sequence we have, these set pieces that they were using in just this first episode. I, things are going to get turned up to 11 real quick here in Season 2, and I can't wait and we only have to wait a week. And I am going to do my best to make sure these podcasts come out later in the day, but on Fridays for the rest of the season. Thanksgiving might be a tricky one, but I'm going to make, I'm going to do my darndest, all right? That might be the only week. Put an asterisk by that one. I, you know, family, what are you going to do? <coughs> <coughs> all right, so I think that's it for Mandovision for our, our first episode of season two. Chapter 9, The Marshal. What a great one. Let me let me reemphasize. Written and directed by John Favreau. Uh, Timothy Oliphant, John Leguizamo, Amy Sedaris, and Tamora Morrison are our big guest stars. And wow, what a great one. What are your thoughts on this episode? How did it strike you? What were some of like, the, the Easter eggs and the, and the little winks and nods that you caught that really grabbed your attention, that really made you happy? I mean, there's a lot in there. I don't think we covered all of them in this one. But we got a lot of them, but not all of them. So reach out to me. Hit me up via social media. We're at Mando underscore Vision on Twitter and Instagram. And that is the best way to get a hold of me. And I will I will promise I will get back to you as, as soon as humanly possible. Please make sure you are liking, subscribing, and sharing the show with all the other Mandalorians in your clan, in your in your coverts. And uh, join. Let, the, let everyone join the fun. We're going to have a good time here. This is going to be a blast for the next eight weeks. We're going to have so much fun discussing the Mandalorian and everything that's happening on it. All of his connections to the to the mythology, its deepening of the mythology, and again, let me emphasize that one more time. One of my favorite parts of this episode. Again, we go back to Tatooine, but we see a new version. Like we see more of Tatooine. We see a new take on Tatooine, and we get to know more about the Sand People. Sand People very commonly portrayed as as raiders, as bandits, as you know, bad guys basically in in the Star Wars universe. This gives them so much more texture, so much more dimensions and features, and makes them a a, a real people. Uh, the the and, and the, sort of like the native inhabitants of Tatooine, so they should be more respected, and and you know our the, uh, our understanding of their perspective should be something that that is more prevalent in Star Wars, and I think this episode does a good job of highlighting why it's important that that you know they just not be viewed as adversaries. Really great stuff, really great stuff. I don't want to hammer you guys too hard on that one, but uh, you know because the conflict between the Tuscans and, and the settlers and the, and the moisture farmers, that's always going to be there. That's in a lot of the lore. That's in a lot of the canon. But it's good for us as an audience to know that they're not just like savages and monsters, and you know, again, they're basically an, an, an anagram or an analog for for the Native Americans and the and the settlers of the Old West. Again, the Western motifs in this show are are off the charts in this episode in particular. But I think that's why it's so enjoyable for so many people because it's something we understand. It's not crazy bonkers force you know stuff like force dyads that we had to go home and Google later. Again, I won't go down that road. I love this show. I can't stop talking about it, but I'm going to have to. All right, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> I'll see everyone next week. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Mandovision. Remember, we are here every Friday for the season, and uh, we're going to be breaking it down. Hit me up on those social medias, at Mando underscore Vision. Thank you all so much for listening. I will be back next week. My name is Tom. 
This is the way. Sorry, I didn't have time to explain. No need. This was well earned. It was my pleasure. I hope our paths cross again. As do I. Oh, and you tell your people I wasn't the one that broke that. Cobb Vanth just threw Han Solo under the bus.